Thank you all for coming here. Um, as Chris said, uh, I've been at Stanford for a while. I did my graduate work at Columbia where I worked with mouse embryonic stem cells and I made a mouse model of a human disease. I came to Stanford uh, at the end of 2000 and did my postdoc beginning in uh, the lab of Julie Baker in the genetics department. I started off actually looking for genes involved in liver development using both frog and mouse. After a couple years, I switched gears completely and started working with human embryonic stem cells, where uh, I'll tell you about uh, some of that work here. I derived a couple lines. Most recently, for about a year now, I, as Chris mentioned, I have an appointment in OBGYN, uh, and I'm residing here in this lovely new building in the Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine, where I am the director of the core facility and do the training, and I've had the opportunity to start beginning to develop my own independent research program, which I'll touch on just at the end. So, really, I'm going to tell you about really what I'm interested in as far as research, and that is using pluripotent human, ESL, human cells as a model system for studying development and disease. I'm going to start off and give you some sort of very basic introduction into biology just so we're all on the same page and then I'm going to talk specifically about my work making new lines and I'm going to end with a short discussion of a more recent uh, breakthrough in my opinion and talk about how that sort of is changing my work at moving forward. So. I'm most interested in developmental biology, and the fundamental question in developmental biology is how the fertilized egg gives rise to the whole adult body with all the different cell types. About 300 years ago, they had a very nice, clever way to explain it, and that is they felt that you had a preformed human in the sperm, and it just got bigger, and the woman in the egg just provided nutrients. Now, of course, we know that's complete nonsense, and we know that really development begins with a uniform uh, cell type, single cell, the fertilized egg, which then starts dividing, and eventually, as it divides, it starts changing, and the cells become different from each other. This is actually human embryos, day one, day two. By about day five, you get what's called a blastocyst, and at this point, the cells we know are actually becoming different from each other. The blastocyst is like a, a, a hollow ball. The cells on the outside of the ball will give rise to the extra embryonic tissues like the placenta. And the cells right in the middle here, which I'll show you in better detail later, will give rise to all the other tissues of the, the body proper. Yes? Uh, I don't know. This is a, like a pronucleus. No, these are uh, pronuclei that are exuded. So the, the question was, in this first picture on the left, is this the sperm? Uh, it's not. <laughs> so uh, the process of how the cells change, right, starting from here where, let's say, the first cell and where you have two cells, four cells, where they're all essentially the same and all can give rise to all the cells in the body and become different from each other is called differentiation. So embryonic stem cells are derived or descendants of this 
a five to seven day embryo called the blastocyst. And in the blastocyst, as I just mentioned before, there's basically two different types of cells that we know of. The cells on the outside, which will give rise to the extra embryonic tissues like the placenta. And this cluster of cells here called the inner cell mass that will give rise to all the other cells in the, the embryo and the body proper. On the left here, you see this is kind of like a cut through the middle of the sphere. And the panel on the right, you can see it's actually looking through the hollow ball and the ICM is sort of resting on the bottom. So this is where um, presumably we get the human embryonic stem cells from. As these cells differentiate, are they all identical, different, identical or some different, uh, lung, like different cells to go to become a lung cell or a heart cell? Right. So the question is, are these uh, human embryonic stem cells differentiated yet? Now, at the embryos, at the blastocyst, there's basically two types of cells. The cells in the uh, inner cell mass, that small cluster of cells that will give rise to all the tissues of the body, and then the cells on the periphery, the outside of the, uh, the hollow ball that are called the like, trophectoderm cells, and those will give rise to just the extra embryonic tissues. But that's the only distinguishing cell types that we know at that point. So at that point, we actually can take out the inner cell mast cells and make what we call human embryonic stem cells. And at this point, they're not differentiated. That's why we're so interested in them. They're what we call pluripotent. And what that means is that if we change the way we grow them, they can actually give rise to all the tissues of the adult uh, body. So this is why we're so interested in them, because we can grow them in the dish and maintain them in the undifferentiated state. But then by manipulating the growth conditions, we can make them become all the different types of cells of the adult. It's a, so the placenta is a mixture between fetal and maternal components. So the cells that give rise to the, the body in its entirety are from the inner cell mass, not from the, the other cells. So it's like a hybrid, the is a hybrid of the mother and the baby. Yes. So the, yes. In the inner cell mass, there, somewhere I you think you mentioned they were differentiated. No. Oops. So the. To become the blast. No, okay, let me back up here. This is probably the easiest. When you start off at this stage, the first four days of development from fertilization, four days of development, you have eight cells here. At this point, all of these cells can give rise to an entire organism. When you have the blastocyst stage, now we know there's two types of cells. It might be more complicated than that, but we know that there's two types of cells. The cells on the outside here will give rise to the placenta, and this little cluster of cells will give rise to everything else in our body. And that's it. But it hasn't begun to do that yet. That happens later in development. So by taking this, we can make, taking these cells, the inner cell mass cells, we can make human embryonic stem cells 
which then we can study because they are what we call pluripotent and they have the ability if we manipulate how we grow them to give rise to all the other cells of the body. This of course is an extremely complex process and this is what we're spending all of our time studying. Okay. So of course there's great promise and hope for human embryonic stem cell research for several reasons. One, uh, as I just mentioned, the, the study of early development, how these decisions are made to differentiate the early cells into the more uh, adult, mature cell types. In addition, there's great promise to use this for what's called translational research, in that because it's human tissue, we hope that we could use the technologies to develop things to cure diseases, human diseases, like tissue replacement therapy is something people talk about. If we can take human embryonic stem cells and make them become things like motor neurons, we may someday be able to use them to uh, cure people with spinal cord injuries. Or if we can make them secrete uh, insulin, we may be able to use those cells to treat someone with diabetes. In addition, What's often overlooked is that by using these cells in the lab, we could make models of human disease. So if we can make human embryonic stem cells from someone who has something like Parkinson's disease, we could then make neurons in the dish and then test different drugs to see if we can actually alleviate the deficiencies. So human embryonic stem cells has great promise to use them as models for human disease and uh, hopefully drug discovery to cure disease. However, there's several challenges in human embryonic stem cell research. One interesting thing that often is not pointed out, I'll get to a little more later, is that of the lines that have been derived, there are significant biological differences from one line to another. I'll touch on that a little bit in, uh, later. In addition, if we want to uh, make lots of heart cells to cure heart disease, we want to have an efficient process to do that. At this point, pretty much all the directed differentiation protocols are very inefficient. We're just learning how to make the undifferentiated stem cell become the adult cell type. When we do get that, we often find that it doesn't just make like a plate full of neurons for uh, curing spinal cord injuries, but it's a complex population of cells. So we need to get the tools to actually pull out those different populations and determine um, which are the cells of interest and, and really describe them on the molecular level. Once we do that, before we go to the clinic, we would like to have animal models. So we actually know that the cells can function not in, just in a dish, but in a living organism. And for the most part, we have very few animal models that can actually test the function of these cells that we hope to get for their ability to function in a live animal, in vivo. Another problem which specifically affects me and uh, many researchers is that unlike other stem cells uh, model systems, specifically the mouse embryonic stem cell field, manipulating the human embryonic stem cell field on the molecular levels are very difficult. So with mouse embryonic stem cells, you can actually go in and mutate specific genes in a very precise way. So if you want to work on a, a mouse model like I did of a human disease, I actually went in and I disrupted that gene. And then I made a mouse that lacked function for that gene and saw the effect. For the most part, we can't do that yet with human embryonic stem cells. Finally. 
So the question was, um, is the lack of animal models to show function in vivo of uh, the cells that we derive from uh, embryonic stem cells, is the lack of the models due to a biological, like technological problem, or is it a political problem? And for the most part, it's a technical problem. There has been some uh, dust stirred up about making human-animal hybrids, but for the most part, uh, the major problem is that people just haven't been able to come up with good reliable models uh, for things like, I mean, people are working on it, and they have things like uh, spinal cord injury models that they're working on, um, but we need to have very, we need a lot of advancement in that as far as making robust models that people really believe that, that model um, the diseases that we're interested in, in curing. Um, so I'm going to move on now to the uh, derivation work that I've done here. As I mentioned before, the current human embryonic stem cell lines have significant biological differences, and there's, there's two primary differences. One is the uh, some lines seem to be more stable as far as maintaining the proper number of chromosomes when you grow them for a long time versus other lines. But more interestingly, for, to me at least, some lines have differences in their ability to form the mature cell types that we want. So for instance, if you take two different cell lines and you grow them under identical conditions to try and make them become neurons, one cell line may make lots of forebrain neurons, but the other cell line may not. So grown under just parallel conditions, same growth factors. We don't really understand why. So one of the ways to address this is just to make more lines and try and get a better understanding. Is it uh, underlying genetic difference because they all came from individual embryos? Or is it just a technical difference? Or some of the lines just mutant? And we don't know that yet. We need to make more lines to actually study them. Once we get a better population of lines, we hopefully can address this. So the question is when I select uh, materials to make uh, the human embryonic stem cell lines, they have a preference as far as the age. The, the answer is I don't actually select them in that we get them donated. So whatever is donated, we use. Um, there is some sort of, uh, we can, but the, the what, is important to know is that all the embryos we get are from couples who are going through uh, assisted reproduction, reproductive. So they have um, their they have problems with their fertility, or maybe they're checking for specific inherited genetic diseases. So there's a sort of self-selection there for the people who have uh, reproductive needs and who have the financial means to actually pay for uh, in vitro fertilization. Um, as, so as far as my work, we use whatever we get donated to us. I don't actually uh, have, in fact, uh, it's prohibited 
for me to go through and select from, let's say, you, I say, I, I like your traits, I want to try and make stem cell lines from your eggs and uh, someone else's sperm or your partner's sperm, and I'm going to give you $50. That's prohibited. Everything is surplus embryos that come through from couples who are going voluntarily through in vitro fertilization treatment. No. So it's random. You don't really have much information on the background. No. So what the question is like, do we have the information about the uh, couples? There's two different levels. We could, if we consent, if we make our protocol so we can get actual linkage to the patient information, we could do that, which requires a higher level of scrutiny as far as the internal review board. Um, alternatively, we can have no connection no links between the biological materials that the scientists use and the patient. The first uh, lines that I derived, there was no linkage whatsoever. Moving forward, the um, oversight committees and uh, the state are thinking that if we are going to make lines that can be used for therapies, we may actually want linkage to the um, couples whose biological materials these came from. So we have now just gone through an arduous process to have new consent forms and the whole uh, consenting issue to protect their privacy but still maintain the possibility of linkage in case we discover something uh, about the cells that might be important to recontact them or even to just get baseline information about their family as far as inherited diseases. Mm -hmm. that have come from couples that don't have fertility problems um, and they don't face the same legal obstacles that are in the U.S.? Um. So I can't say whether or not they don't exist, but I uh, have had some, so the question was whether um, in other countries, they essentially just harvest eggs and make lines. Uh, for the most part, the, I've had contact with uh, Chinese re researchers, and they have IVF there. <laughs> so they have surplus embryos through in vitro fertilization, and that's what they hope to use. I know that the um, scandal with the South Korean research group to make uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer, which is slightly different, but one of the ethical problems with that is that he recruited um, members of his lab to donate, healthy members to donate their eggs. It's not exactly the same. Um, but by and large, there is a surplus of IVF embryos that uh, have no use and are either discarded or given for research. So I would say the vast majority like 99.9% of embryonic stem cell lines are using that material just because there's no need to to go through. Other than to see the difference. Yeah, it, yeah. it comes out of a 18-year-old versus a 39-year-old woman's egg, so the difference is a younger egg. So at this point, we don't know whether there's differences between a younger and older egg, but to sort of answer around that question, we know that 
older women who uh, go through IVF can have healthy, normal children. So there's no red flags that have been raised to say that the, um, the cell lines that we derive from the IVF embryos are going to be subpar compared to if we got like 16-year-old ovum. Maybe the efficiency might be different, but on the biological level, just the outcome we know, uh, it works. They get normal, healthy, fertile children. So, uh, the other reason why it is needed to drive more lines, which is a little more complicated, is that the original lines were all derived using animal products and animal cells as feeders, as Chris probably touched on earlier. And the idea is if we're actually going to use human embryonic stem cells to make tissues, tissue replacement therapies, there's an inherent risk if you actually are mixing them with animal products and that there could be unknown viruses that could be transferred from the animal products to these human cells, which then if you in turn put them in a human could give rise to unexpected negative consequences. So there's a uh, there's an effort to come up with new growth techniques and new derivation techniques that are using completely defined uh, medias to grow them and uh, removing all animal source products. Are there any like high throughput growth techniques for stem cells at this time, or is it all done like For the most part, it's all done by. Uh, individuals like me <laughs> and so as far as the the growth the ideally if we want to make enough cells to cure heart disease we would like to scale up and have some sort of automated process I, I know of one company who made a robot that can do that but uh, for the most part it's uh, low-tech individuals growing cells I don't really know what the state of art is at, let's say, Geron, who is, who's trying to gear up for clinical trials, whether they have automated it at all. But um, the research, by and large, is all done just with uh, brute force manual labor, sort of small scale. Um, finally, uh, if we want to use human embryonic stem cells to study, as I do, uh, development and disease, we would like to have embryonic stem cell lines that harbor specific diseases. And at this point, there's hardly any disease-specific lines. So these uh, three points were sort of the motivation for me to try and derive uh, new lines. So as I mentioned before, human embryonic stem cells are derived from surplus IVF embryos. This again is just sort of the what embryos look like as they develop from fertilization out to day five or six. So what happens when a couple goes in for uh, in vitro fertilization treatment, they have an egg and a sperm that are fertilized in the dish and they're allowed to develop. If they have healthy embryos at Stanford, they transfer usually one to five healthy blastocysts, which is the name, which is the name for this embryo at like day five or six. One to three of them are transferred to the woman with the hopes of uh, giving rise to her pregnancy. 
If they have extra embryos that look normal, typically they freeze them down, they cryopreserve them, so that way if the first transfer doesn't result in a successful pregnancy, they don't have to go through the whole process of collecting the egg and the sperm, they can just thaw out the healthy looking embryo and do a transfer then directly. As part of this process, almost always they also get abnormal looking embryos. So, Although we're very successful at in vitro fertilization, getting the embryos to grow and look uh, nice, oftentimes we get abnormal looking embryos and those are routinely discarded. So, How many abnormal embryos do you usually get in an IVF cycle? So the number of abnormal embryos that we get I will actually mention in a later slide. Uh, so just to reiterate, embryonic stem cells are derived using the excessed uh, blastocysts that would otherwise be discarded for, as a normal process of in vitro fertilization. So we actually get two types of surplus embryos through IVF. One are cryopreserved embryos. As I mentioned, if they have extra embryos, they, they don't like to transfer everything because then you have a risk of multiple uh, pregnancies. And if you have like triplets, quadruplets, you uh, introduce risk not only to the uh, fetus's health, but to the mother's health. So extra good looking embryos are uh, cryopreserved. And what happens is that the couple then pays an annual fee to maintain them in, in liquid nitrogen frozen down. But then, as they get older and they no longer have the need for them, they have a choice. They can either um, have them destroyed or donate them for research. So cryopreserved embryos is a, a major source of the donation. The second source, as I mentioned before, are fresh embryos that are deemed unsuitable for clinical IVF use. And there's basically two classes of these embryos. One are embryos that had poor development, so they just look abnormal, and those would just be discarded immediately. And the second class are embryos that have been determined to be genetically abnormal. So this is using a technique called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So what happens if you have a, uh, in your family, let's say, a uh, history of Tay-Sachs disease, there's a genetic test for Tay-Sachs disease. So you can go to an IVF clinic and have your embryos fertilized in vitro and then they'll keep each one separate and remove a single cell from each one and then test to see which embryos are affected and which embryos are not affected. The ones that are not affected will be used in attempts to make a baby and the affected ones are typically just discarded. That's why you do the whole test. So um, we like uh, to try and use these embryos whenever possible to try and make disease-specific lines. Wouldn't you be able to somehow manipulate that embryo into a disease-specific then type of cell line? Or is that just not feasible? So the... So the, the so I think the question is if the family has Tay-Sachs disease, mm -hmm. then that embryo that had the PGD right. could create lines that Yes. That's that's exactly. That's why this is exactly what so the question is uh, can't you use these embryos that have been determined to have a specific disease to study 
And yes, that's what we like to do. This is one of the main uh, goals of the research is to have the ability to derive lines so we can utilize this material as opposed to discard it and hopefully study the disease, better understand it, and maybe come up with treatments. Yes? No. Okay, so the question is with these uh, embryos that are fresh and that would be discarded, um, aren't we interested in using them? And yes, and the answer is yes, and actually these are the embryos that we try and derive lines from. So these are the two uh, sources of embryos that we get donated. Uh, just to sort of get a little deeper into this, the in the United States alone, there's almost half a million surplus embryos in cryopreservation, okay? A few years ago, President Bush, uh, when trying to make a political point, said that these embryos in cryopreservation shouldn't be donated for research, for embryonic stem cell research. Instead, they should be donated to someone else to try and make a baby, the so-called snowflake babies. The thing that he didn't point out is that these embryos come from couples who have fertility problems. If you're another couple who have fertility problems and you want to have a donation to try and make your own, uh, start your own family, the last place you're going to go to is a family that already had fertility problems. Usually there's one of the two members in the uh, couple that has uh, an issue. So typically you would go and either get a sperm donor or an egg donor from a healthy person. So although theoretically it's possible, in reality it hardly ever happens. It just doesn't make sense. If you have fertility problems and you need a donation, you're going to go to a healthy couple. You're not going to go to someone else who had fertility problems. Um, since we began our derivation program at Stanford, without any sort of public outreach or recruitment, we've had over 300 cryopreserved embryos donated specifically to us for stem cell research. And to touch on uh, Chris Scott's question a few uh, minutes ago, at Stanford, at the IVF center, they typically discard more than 20 fresh subclinical grade embryos a week. Just to give you an idea what these look like, this is here on the left, a typical cohort of embryos that arise during uh, in vitro fertilization. These two embryos here in the middle are healthy, good-looking expanded blastocysts. These two embryos here I don't know if you can tell very well, but they don't really have that round ball shape with the discrete little inner cell mass here. They're kind of condensed. These are abnormal embryos, and they would typically be discarded. Now, this uh, embryo here on the right, this is one such embryo that we had donated. It was a fresh subclinical grade embryo. We plated it down, and we actually derived our second line using this. So. If, if we weren't here trying to do this, would have, this would have just been discarded immediately. So what we actually do is when we get donated embryos through the uh, IVF lab, is we take them and we plate them down in a dish. We grow them under the standard conditions to grow them is on a bed of other cells, which are called feeder cells. These are these sort of spindly cells on the outside. The blastus itself 
will just play it down. It's called a, an outgrowth. And usually it's this ugly sort of amorphous mass. About once a week, we'll go in here with small little glass tools that we make by hand, and we'll cut them into smaller pieces and put them on a new dish of feeders. And we'll continue to do this. In the beginning, I did it until all the pieces just went away. Um, and when you're lucky, about 10% of the time, you actually get a new human embryonic stem cell line. And what I found is actually when it works, you can usually tell within the first couple of weeks that you're getting a new line. Um, this is the LSJ2 from that abnormal embryo that I showed you before. And sort of on the right there, I can already tell there's human embryonic stem cell like colonies showing up. So. Right, so it takes approximately, well, there's different criteria for uh, proclaiming that you've established a line, right? Um, I can usually tell within two weeks whether or not it's going to give a line. But in actuality, in order to have established a line, you need to grow, enough, grow up enough cells to be able to freeze down to make a stock, and then you have to be able to thaw that. So if I can grow them for two weeks, but then I lose it all, I haven't established a line. I have to be able to make a master bank that we can thaw and then use and study. And that takes maybe four to six months. Um, and in addition, we have to do other things to characterize them to show that they're actual stem cells, which I'll talk about in just a second. So um, we derive two lines using standard conditions, two other lines with um, defined conditions, which I won't talk about. We named them LSJ1 and 2 after Leland Stanford Jr., who was the son of the Stanfords, who died at the age of 16, I think, of typhoid fever. And uh, his parents established Stanford University in his honor. Um, we use sort of standard conditions. So the question is, once we get something that, like this, how do we know that it's actually a pluripotent stem cell line? Um, there's a couple criteria. Uh, the main thing is we differentiate them. We make them become the cells of the adult. What you see on the right is sort of the gold standard of uh, proving pluripotency of a stem cell line, and these are making a teratoma. So what we do is we take the cells and we actually inject them into a immunodeficient mouse it has to be immunodeficient, otherwise the mouse's immune system will attack the injected cells and kill them. So we have an immunodeficient mouse, and then it will actually, the cells will start differentiating. And if they differentiate into cells that are found in all three germ layers, so the, the three major classes of cells in the adult organism, then we say that it's a pluripotent cell line. So these are um, chondrocytes, so bone-like cells from uh, teratoma, and this is smooth muscle here from a teratoma. The other way that we uh, test them to see whether they're actually pluripotent stem cells is to differentiate them in vitro, so in the dish. Just by changing the way we grow them, we let them become different cell types. So this is, typically we get a mixture of cells as far as what they look like. Um, and we can actually go in and look at markers for specific lineages. So these guys are actually expressing a liver-specific gene, which makes them glow green. 
Yes. Right. So the question is whether we, when we do in vitro differentiation, how well can we control it? We try. That's what we're all trying to do. It's very difficult. Um, sometimes it happens just spontaneously. This right here are cells that changed how I grew them, and they started beating like cardiomyocytes. Um, other times, like this, I, these cells here, I did a very specific treatment. I uh, added a, a specific growth factor in hopes to try and make them become these liver-like cells. But this is where most of the research, I think, is going to be needed in the future to, to develop these techniques to direct the differentiation specifically to the clinically relevant or just biologically interesting cell types of the adult. So I'm going to change gears a little bit now and talk briefly about uh, a disease-specific line. So as I mentioned before, the other things that we're interested in is try and make disease-specific lines. And when we're doing disease-specific lines from human for human embryonic stem cells, we really only have one source, and that is couples who go through in vitro fertilization because they have uh, inherited disease. Some, like there's, I think, 200 different single gene disorders that they can test for now. Um, for instance, Huntington's disease. So if you have a family that has a couple that has Huntington's disease and they want to make sure that their children don't have Huntington's disease, they can have their uh, sperm and egg fertilized in the dish. And then when it divides to approximately eight cell stage, shown here on the right, um, the embryologist will actually cut a little hole and pull out one of these cells, send it off to another lab who will have established a quality controlled test to determine whether that cell is affected with Huntington's disease. So then they can go back and say which embryos would be affected and which ones wouldn't. And then only the ones that they have a positive ID saying that they are not affected with Huntington's disease would be transferred to make a baby. And the ones that are affected would typically be discarded. So what that means is, for, from my perspective, where it's really just by chance and luck whether someone comes through the IVF lab to do this pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and then donates the embryos to us for us to try and make a line. And then once we do, we have maybe a 10% chance of actually getting a line. Yes. So it's usually only, so this only happens when there is an established genetic inherited uh, dis disorder in the family. And for the most part, the tests are limited to dominant single gene disorders. So the complex things like, let's say, schizophrenia, um, Alzheimer's, there do not exist tests at this point. It's only the, the more rare single gene dominant disorders that they actually test for. Some of the things, like I said, Huntington's disease, uh, they test for sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis, um, Marfan syndrome. Uh, Chris could probably rattle off another 20 diseases. Uh, but so for that one little cell that you get, yes. how many diseases do you test for? Uh, they, you, biological tissue. 
Right, so the question is when they do a biopsy and they pull out a single cell, how many different sites can you test? How many different diseases? And for the most part at this point, they're testing for one disease. At most, they're looking at, I think, two to four different sites at the same time. Um, and the embryo doesn't mind that it's missing a cell when implantation. Right. So the question is whether when you remove a cell from here, does it affect the health of the embryo? And the companies that make these tests say no, and the IVF doctors say no. But there has been a recent study saying that there is a reduction in the viability. But it's important to note that it works, and you get healthy children born. So it's really a judgment call on the side of the parents and saying um, how important it is uh, to ensure that your children don't uh, inherit this disease. And it's an it's a important question, I think, that Chris probably uh, is uh, the expert on it, but you can think some diseases like Huntington's disease, where it's a pretty horrific pathology that is uh, late onset, and if you had have it in your family and you see your, your father or mother die of Huntington's disease, you might be um, have strong motivation to see that your children don't have that. One of the um, most recent papers on how many children have been born after the, the 17, 15 to 1700 tests that have resulted in children that are now walking among Now, PDD has only been around for about 17 years or so, so these kids are in their late teens. Though they appear to be normal and everything seems to be fine, it's not clear whether there are perhaps some longer-term effects that we simply don't know about. But for all intents and purposes, the the test and the children that are born from after the test it seems to be normal. Yes, some of them are being followed. Yes. At Stanford, how many in your registry here of the dominant single gene disorder? Andrews, you have? So the question is, how many opportunities have I had to uh, yeah. try and derive a line from a PGD embryo? And I don't know the specific number. I can tell you I probably had about 10 embryos with, uh, donated with a disease called osteogenesis imperfecta, which I got no lines. And I had two embryos with cystic fibrosis. And I, I really wanted to get a line with that, and I, I didn't get one. And then I recently had uh, five embryos with another disease that I got a line. Um, the other thing that they actually do, uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for couples who have repeated cycles and they're unable to get a successful pregnancy, is to simply look for gross chromosomal abnormalities. They have a panel of commonly um, duplicated or deleted chromosomes that are sort of diagnostic for the uh, um, health of the embryo. And they will screen, it's not every single chromosome, but they'll screen that panel. And I've gotten a lot of embryos that are what they call aneuploid. So they have the wrong number of chromosomes. Either they have like four of one kind or they're missing one. I've gotten probably 20 to 30 of those embryos and I haven't gotten a single line, which may just be, <laughs> that's because they are, are biologically inviable. 
right? And that's why they, they don't uh, form a pregnancy. Whereas these other single gene disorders, the reason why they're testing it is because they know it can give rise to a person who then usually has a late onset disease that is, will cause them pain and suffering in the future. The technology doesn't exist. Well, first of all, the, the chance of any. What was the question? The, the, the question is, uh, in theory, would you need 200 cells to examine all the inherited diseases that we can test? Um, and the, from a practical standpoint, the, there's probably going to be no uh, family that has all of these rare diseases. Um, from a technological standpoint, I don't know what the limit is as far as the number of different unique sites you can look at. But there are a lot of people who are trying new technologies to get a, a more comprehensive analysis of all of the genes. Um, but nothing, I believe, is actually approved for use at this point. So at this point, like I, I mentioned previously, I think they can look at two to four independent sites. But usually what they do is they're looking at one gene for one inherited disease, and they'll look at two to four sites right around that in case one of their molecular probes just doesn't work. Maybe another one right by will give them the information they need. Yes? Right, so the comment was the, um, that being able to do pre-implantation diagnosis could have um, great utility just in general. And that's actually a slippery slope as far as ethics in terms of what is worth selecting for. So, right. Might be. right. So that's the, the slippery slope is now. Yes. You can actually test how many bits are you going to find. Well, you shouldn't. You can only test. They only can take little bits. How many bits out of that one? So, this is, this is a, a fantastic discussion, and this is something I was just mentioning to, to Chris. No, this is something that I was mentioning to Chris last week that I think is a really important ethical dilemma that we as a society are really going to have to address, and that is. Given the technology to do in vitro fertilization and give healthy babies and do genetic analysis of the embryos, how far do we go? What is appropriate? What are the parents' rights? What are the parents' duties as far as de predetermining the uh, genetics of the embryos, which then they're going to implant and try and make a baby? You can do um, amniocentesis for a pregnancy and then abort, but clearly if you can do the analysis before you even implant. If you can screen through 50, 100 embryos, and we have the complete sequence of the human genome, what is appropriate? What, are the, what, are, what is the duty? What is going too far? What is irresponsible? Um, 
And these are important questions that I recently ordered a book from Amazon that <laughs> discusses this because I think that uh, it, it's an issue that we're going to have to address. For the most part, I don't believe that we, this technology is going to be a threat to mankind in that we will use it irresponsibly and reduce our overall fitness of the gene pool because uh, it's going to be limited to the wealthy who can do this unless we have a change in healthcare. Um, as far as the costs, there's lots of rich people out there who would be willing to pay for it. As far as the efficiency, it works. And the, the real the question, and the genetic diagnosis works. The, the question is, as we learn more and more about the genes and the role genes play in, the, in development, where do you draw the line? What if you, if you have, I had an argument with a, a professor over at Santa Cruz the other night, and they felt that there was no way that we would actually be able to determine a gene that conveys superior intellect. Right? That's a debatable question. But what if you have uh, statistics that show that if you inherit a s specific form of a gene, that you have 70% chance of having a slightly higher intellect? Okay? Should, you, should that be mandated for everyone to do it? Or should it be prohibited? If a child is born, a couple uh, has lots of money, and they do all these tests, and they screen so they have the super athlete, super intellect child, what kind of pressures would they have on that child, <laughs> right? When they're growing up, they're going to have certain expectations. And we all know that we're not simply, um, who we are is not simply determined by our genes, and so much of it, it comes from society and our environment. So. These are issues that are important that um, you should all go out and discuss with your family members and your congressmen and, and try just and resolve. Cloning, right? You forget all this stuff, just find a really brilliant it's person. Really and <laughs> <laughs> so, it seems that every extreme condition, like extreme brilliance or extreme athletic prowess, always comes with a pretty dramatic drawback. That's just been my life experience. Right? I, you, you all know the famous musicians and artists and scientists who also concurrently have right, so the, of, you know, right. So the common is that basically our, our genetics are complex and the extreme uh, problems often have trade-offs. But what about things that are extreme? What about um, physical traits? What about things like blonde hair and blue eyes and um, a strong build and uh, straight teeth? That might actually give you increased success in our world. Is so, is that good or bad? Should you do that? <laughs> I used to think it should get some documentation about salary without genetic approval. You know, we're already kind of messed with natural selection already because by what you're doing in vitro, we're taking people who normally would not be able to procreate and we've allowed them to procreate. Right. So now we're allowing people who normally would have been selected out so the, the statement is that we're already screwing with evolution and natural selection just by doing PGD. Right. The, the sort of tangential statement that this professor at Santa Cruz said is that we already are selecting for um, traits by the rich people sending their kids to Harvard and they preferentially mate. So how is that different than doing these other uh, things? So they're saying that there's already a built-in inherent inequality in our 
um, gene pool and the structure of our society that leads to this genetic selection. So how is that any different? You could buy an egg for a yeah. tall Scandinavian SAT score over 1500 or whatever it is for what, $70,000 I saw in the Stanford report. Yeah. In fact, I saw a, a quote for an egg of non-Caucasian. I think it was an Indian. Yes. Indian Right. So, again, I think the, the difference, well, I, I don't even know if it's a difference uh, new to society, but it's certainly a new technology. It's a new way of doing it. And it's only going to get more complex because we're only going to find out more about uh, genes and their effect on development and growth. So the questions are going to become more and more acute. And, uh, or we're going to have to deal with them. So, disease-specific lines. I actually had the fortune of getting a uh, embryo that had been determined by pre-implantation genetic diagnosis as carrying a dominant um, autosomal dominant disorder, and I got lucky and derived a new line, which I'm not going to go into because uh, of time. No. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the disease. Maybe I'll tell you when I'm off mic uh, that, what the disease is. Um, but it really got me thinking about if I'm going to use this to develop my own independent research project and my research career, what would I like to do? I, so I have one line, a human embryonic stem cell line, that has a mutation in a specific gene that gives rise to inherited disorder. Now. It's tremendous. I can use it to, in this disorder, the, the primary defects are in the cardiovascular system and in the skeletal system. So I can take these undifferentiated cells and then I can make them become like heart cells and compare them with normal cells and see what the defect is. Or I can make them become bone cells and compare it with normal embryonic stem cells differentiated alongside to bone and then compare. Look at all the genes that are regulated and try and really nail down what the molecular defect is in this particular mutant line. But it's one line. If I was working with mouse, I would actually go and I make lots of lines. We already know that there's differences in the human embryonic stem cells, the normal lines that are derived. I would like to make lots of lines and compare them and really make a robust um, system. In addition, this disease, like many diseases, varies in terms of the clinical presentation in the families depending on where the mutation is within the gene. Now my particular line has a mu uh, mutation in the beginning of the gene. That's associated with skeletal and skin uh, defects. There's uh, another region, it's not really in the middle, but uh, in uh, 
more towards the middle of the gene that's in, uh, associated, strongly associated with the severe neonatal form of the disease. So individuals who inherit this typically die before the uh, age of one due to congestive heart failure. In contrast, mutations at the very end of the gene are associated with a less severe phenotype. So if, I'm, if I want to develop this into a really robust uh, project, I would like to have mutations throughout the whole gene that mirror the clinical presentation that we see with the patients. However, to get the donated embryos through PGD and the IVF lab is sort of hit or miss. I can't go and uh, you know, ask people to go through PGD. Um, when they do come through, I try and make a line whenever I can. This disease affects approximately one in 5,000 people, so it's considered a common disease, so there's a chance that I get more lines. But it's really luck. Once I do get embryos donated, it's a 10% chance of getting it. Um, as I mentioned in the very beginning, manipulating human embryonic stem cells on the molecular level is very difficult. I spend very lot of time thinking, well, how can I actually just make these mutations myself in human embryonic stem cells and model them as I would if I was working in a mouse? And then, about two months ago, there was a major breakthrough that was in human. A similar thing had been done about a year or a year and a half before that in mouse. And this is by a Japanese researcher named Shinya Yamanaka. And he was able to make what is called induced pluripotent stem cells. So he was able to reprogram adult cells to make them become or have the characteristics of human embryonic stem cells. And the way that he did this is actually pretty amazing in my opinion. And that is, he started off by looking at the genes that are expressed, the genes that are on in embryonic stem cells, and compare them with other cells. And then he just took the ones that were highly expressed in the embryonic stem cells and compared to normal cells, and just started putting them in skin cells. And when he had a list of 24 genes, he actually was able to make them adopt or be reprogrammed to become like embryonic stem cells. He later, uh, by process of elimination, narrowed that down to four genes. So what he does is he takes skin cells from an adult. First, this was done in a mouse, and recently it was done in humans. And then he uses biotechnology and uh, actually viruses to insert the genes that will encode for those four factors. And then simply by changing how he grows them after he's inserted those genes, and he starts growing them in human embryonic stem cell growth conditions, he actually will get cells that look like human embryonic stem cells. And when we say they look like human embryonic stem cells, it means that they express many, but not all of the same genes as human embryonic stem cells. And for, from my perspective, what's important is that they can make teratomas with all three germ layers, meaning that when he takes these cells, he can make them differentiate into the important adult cell types. Now there's still, this is basically only two months old, there's still some question whether or not this type of technology will ever be suitable for tissue replacement therapy because you're 
doing this crazy molecular manipulation. You're, oh, you're shoving in these four genes, which all could be considered uh, genes that promote cancer, right? And then uh, changing the growth conditions, and then you get, you reprogram them and get the embryonic stem cell-like thing. Why do you say those genes can promote cancer? So, one of them, CMYK, is like a well-established oncogene, so we know that it uh, will promote cancer. All these other genes here are highly expressed in embryonic stem cells and are actually, in one way or another, associated with some sorts of tumor. Um, the sort of philosophical uh, point that should be made is that, in general, when you have cancer arising, it's thought that the cell is becoming more and more embryonic or primitive-like. So these genes that are all highly expressed in the embryonic undifferentiated state um, in some ways could, or actually in reality, are associated with different tumors. So. Right, so the question is, aren't these, cell, aren't these genes already in the genome? Now this is actually the, I, I meant to mention in the very beginning, the whole process of differentiation and development. When you start off with the single fertilized egg and it divides two, four cells, eight cells, and they become different from each other and they differentiate, each cell still has all of the same genes. The difference is that in a heart cell, it's expressing one subset, you know, the 500 heart genes, and in the uh, brain neuron, it's expressing the 1,000 neuron genes. So everyone has the same DNA, but what makes one cell different from the other is the genes that are expressed. It's actually a progress, it's not just one step. but the differential gene expression actually governs what makes an uh, undifferentiated cell become a heart cell or a pancreas cell or a stomach cell. So, yes, the skin cells actually have these four genes in them, but they're not expressed at the same levels as the embryonic stem cell. And to me... So where does Yamanaka get these genes? He, he cloned them. So the question was, where did he get these genes? He, as far as he chose them based on the level of expression of these genes in the embryonic stem cell. So he just had a list of genes that were expressed really high in the embryonic stem cell. And then to actually get them, he took DNA from any cell and then uh, used molecular biology techniques to isolate the DNA specific for these genes. And then once you isolate it and you have it in a tube, you can manipulate it, put it in, in this case, in a virus. And then the virus infects the cells, injects that DNA into uh, his skin cell, and then uh, it comes on, and then the magic happens. I have a technical, why does it, why is it in So the, um, when they insert this, they actually have 
a, the, the part of the DNA that co encodes the structural protein for this gene, let's talk about CMYK, right? So CMYK has a sequence of DNA which is encodes for the protein that actually functions and, and performs the um, activities of CMYK. <coughs> so they take that part of the DNA, and before that, they hook up a regulatory piece of DNA, which is called a promoter, and that directs when and where the gene should be on. So they take a piece of regulatory DNA that is what we call ubiquitous, so it's on at high levels in all cells. They take a ubiquitous promoter that regulates the gene expression and slap in their new gene, shove it all into a virus, the virus squirts it into these cells, now you have this foreign piece of DNA it's actually another copy of the gene that's normally in the chromosome, but it's completely recombinant DNA with a new promoter, a new regulatory region, turning on this gene, firing it like crazy. Yes? Why did he only pick four genes? He started with, uh, so the question is, why do you only have four? He started actually with a large list. Um, and I don't know if his, it was his first experiment. The first ex successful experiment was 24 genes. Um, and then he went and repeated it, and through a process of elimination, got it down to four. Were the 24 genes in different combinations? It took him a while. And then figured out which combination of four genes yielded this embryonic-like state. It was an elegant experiment. The, 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 the big international meeting where he presented it, was the talk of the week. It was a stunning work. So how work. long did it take I mean, him to go from 24 to 4? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it was probably months or maybe a year. Yeah. It was a long time. The tedious work that he did. Yeah. And now that this is published, others are going to try to recreate it. So, so right. So since this has been published, there's been four other publications. Uh, people have done, actually, five. There was one that just came out. So other people in Wisconsin, uh, at Harvard, and now in UCLA have all uh, done it. Was this the work that caused George Bush in his State of the Union address to say, isn't it wonderful that we waited because now we can use tissue cells and back them up into for a potential cell? Was, this, was that what he was talking about? Right, so I think that this, I didn't see the State of the Union, but I think this is the work that Bush held up as Justif or justification for his uh, stem cell policy. Um, and actually, um, I'm just going to move on to the last slide to sort of segue into what I'm doing and how this affects my work. Now, yes? What the of the gene on the top there? What, what, what do you call that? This is basically uh, just a cartoon depiction of what the gene may look. These different bars are different structural elements, like um, EGF-like domains, <laughs> so. This part here? Yeah, what do you call the entire sketch illustrating the gene position? I call this a, a cartoon. Cartoon. So, <laughs> you can draw it in lots of different ways. Uh, I, I didn't put in the details because uh, all of it is very esoteric as far as what it is. is I really wanted to just show that there's different parts of a gene, and mutations at different regions will have different effects. So 
as far as my work and, and what this new development means is that, as I mentioned before, I've made human embryonic stem cell lines, both normal and with a specific disease. And I'm working primarily in making them become the clinically relevant tissues like bone and cardiovascular cells, and then comparing them to see if I can detect a molecular difference between the normal or what we call wild type cells and the disease cells. But as I mentioned, it would be great if I could make more lines with different mutations. And this new development with induced pluripotent cells, I hope, is going to allow me to do this. So um, I'm actually in a good position to recruit donors of skin this time, not of embryos, but of skin, who have this disease. And I hope to make a whole bank of induced pluripotent cel cells with this disease, with mutations throughout the gene that are correlated with specific different clinical presentations and then compare them. It's what we would call like genotype to phenotype uh, comparison. So the genotype would be the specific mutation, the phenotype would be the, the outcome in the uh, cell, the presentation of the, the cells. Um, in addition, what's very important is, as I mentioned before, this is only two months old. We know that there's difference in gene expression between the old school human embryonic stem cells and the iPS cells. So we don't know whether or not these iPS cells are going to be suitable for all the applications that we hope to use human embryonic stem cells. So an important part of my research is actually going to be comparing these iPS cells and normal iPS cells that I'll be generating alongside with the human embryonic stem cells. So now, instead of just doing differentiation of two different cell lines, I have a lot more work. I have one, two, three, four, five, six different cell lines that I can compare simultaneously. So I can look at several different things. I can look at the effects of different mutations. I can look at the differences between human embryonic stem cells and iPS cells, and hopefully get a better understanding of the underlying molecular mechanism of the disease. And because I'm doing it in vitro with human cells, hopefully we'll be able to do high throughput drug screening. So for instance, if I can make cardiovascular tissue and I can see a difference in the disease specific line from the normal line, I can see a detectable molecular difference in the dish. Then I can screen through a whole panel of normal drugs, like pill-type drugs, small molecules, and see if I can alleviate that difference with the ultimate goal of discovering new drugs that can be used to treat patients with this severe life-threatening disease. So this is my little niche, but you can imagine this is just one disease. There's lots of diseases out, and the general system could be applied to many different diseases. Um, without having to do tissue replacement therapy and things like that. We'll learn important lessons about developmental biology, disease pathology, and, and more. Uh, okay, just wrapping up. You, uh, here's more information if you want to look. This is a tremendous book. I recommend it highly. Uh, there's also two um, websites that uh, have information about uh, general uh, stem cell research. And my email address is here. I would be happy if any of you have specific questions, you can feel free to email me and I will uh, do my best to respond.